got it. You guys should jump in, you younger folk, you. Uh, well, we're in uh, Acts chapter 4 this morning, and um, pick up where we left off last week. And uh, just so we make sure we're all on the same page, you know, um, the, no book of the Bible was written to break it up like we do to study it. Now, we break it up to study it because you can't cover the whole thing in one sitting, and whether a setting like this or in a Bible study or whatever. So you, we break it up. But the authors weren't writing it to be broken up that way. Um, so I just want to make sure we start off on the same page, making sure that we get the storyline of where we are. Uh, Luke has taken a great amount of time to write to this guy, Theophilus, who we don't really know who he was. Um, could have been even a position in Roman kind of uh, rule. Um, but he wrote already about how the, God the Father sends the Son because he loves the world. So out of his love, the Father sends the Son, Jesus, into the world to ex- perfectly express the goodness and love of God into all these broken areas of the world. And as Jesus came and he did that, he starts to express the goodness of God into these broken areas. People start to glean into that. They're attracted to that beauty, and they decide that they want to follow the ways of Jesus. They see it as good, as loving, and as a reflection of a good and loving God. So they call themselves followers of Jesus or learners of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And what Jesus says is, is to the, at one point, he says, Now, as I have been sent into the world, I am now sending you into the world. So what that does is, is it gives us a trajectory of thought. So what would it look like? To live in the world, well, we look to Jesus for what that looks like because he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Now, that's in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. He basically describes that. And the book of Acts picks up where now the Father, after sending the Son, the Son sending, saying he's going to send his followers, now the Father sends the Holy Spirit to help the followers of Jesus live into that identity and to witness to the truth and the ways of Jesus. So that's where Acts picks up. And what we've seen is, is now um, Luke is writing and he's helping us get a picture of what that would look like. Now, in our study, if we look at the, we call it the puzzle box picture, uh, we walk through the church foundation, which is the Father sending the Holy Spirit and people being filled with the Holy Spirit and witnessing to the truth of Jesus, even speaking a language they never studied before. So it's a miraculous sign of God is involved here. And then now it's moving out. This witness is moving into this Jewish culture in the context of one city, Jerusalem. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're witnessing to the truth and ways of Jesus. And this is having some both positive and negative feedback. Um, uh, When you you think about the church, um, I think at this point you kind of start to get from Luke at least... Um, And I don't know, these are my words, but as I visualize it, what you start to see is the church is a people that would be standing like in a circle with their arms locked together. And as we stand in a circle, if we were to all go out in the parking lot and we stand like that, it's kind of the picture of the church. However, it might not be how you envision it right now. We would not be facing each other. We'd be in a circle, but all facing outwards. So it's this witness of not just an individual, but of a community. And the community, although they're locked arms and are tight-knit and find a sense of belonging with one another, we're all facing outwards and we're inviting other people into that 
scenario. And so God's using this community that's locked arms, finding a sense of identity and belonging together, but now using that community to witness to the world about the truth and power of Christ. And so Luke starts to give us this kind of picture about this in this Jewish setting. And the first story that he tells us, and Luke's got stories, that's kind of his point. We'll come back to that a little later. But as he, as he starts to tell the story of a man that was healed just outside in kind of, the, kind of like a, a lobby, but a courtyard of the temple. Everybody was coming in. You, learned, you read about this last week. Coming in, they would know this guy is crippled or lame, and he's healed. And when he's healed, all the people are thrilled to death. They think that this is obvious that God is working. This is a miraculous thing that God is doing. But the, the apostles, Peter and John, are saying, we did this in the name of Jesus who resurrected from the grave. So even though the public is excited about that, the religious leaders are not. And as you, we looked at last week, they're so upset about this and annoyed, chapter, the beginning of chapter 4 says, that they actually put Peter and John into a jail cell, lock them up for the night, and go to bed. We pick up on the next morning, okay? So ch- Acts chapter, chapter 4, we'll pick up uh, in verse, uh, we'll go verse 5. Here's, uh, you can read along with me. Um, I'll read from my Bible. You can read from the text up there. On the next day, okay, so this is where we pick up the story. Their rulers and elders, elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were with of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, brought them into the middle, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, so if all this hoorah is based on the fact that we did something good for somebody in need, let me just say this. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, zing, Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, they're in this setting. Now, a little bit about this high priestly family. This is the Sadducees. Sadducees are different than the Pharisees. So if you're familiar with the Bible language and the history or as you read the Gospels, they're, they're different. So the Sadducees are a very upper class group of lay leaders. But they're attracting the rich. So consequently, what they have is they have a lot of social power. And in the hierarchy of a society, they're running a lot of the city. But they're also running the activities in the temple, which man was healed outside, and they're annoyed by that. Why are they annoyed? Well, the Sadducees hold firmly to a belief 
that the first five books in our Bible are the only God-inspired books. So the law, the Pentateuch, books of Moses, however you would refer to them, the Torah, they would say those are the only five books, none of the Psalms or Proverbs or Prophets, none of that, none of that, only these other books. And so uh, they would say that those books don't talk about the afterlife or any sense of resurrection. So they were known as denying the resurrection. So now you can kind of see why they might be annoyed. All of their power, all of their influence is based on more than money. It's also based on their teaching, pointing to Scripture that there is no sort of thing as a resurrection. And yet these people are healing somebody, saying it's in the name of a resurrected Jesus. They want this shut up right now. Because all of their power and influence and teaching is at risk. If Jesus did rise from the grave and he is doing this, they lose influence. They lose power. And so that's why they try to shut him up in a jail. Now, they get to this place, and the message is clear, though, right? The Holy Spirit is empowering these apostles. And now uh, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we read. And what that means, as you read through the book of Acts, here's all that means. When somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to witness to the truth of Jesus or they come to an understanding of the truth of Jesus themselves. As you read the book of Acts, that's what being filled with the Spirit means. Here, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak the truth about where this is coming from. And now, basically, the message is this. Yeah, the guy you killed, Jesus, he's behind all of this. He's doing it. So now they're going to be threatened. Watch this, verse, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, we heard this kind of stuff before. They were unrec- uncommon. They were undistinguished. In other words, they didn't go through rabbinic training but they reeked of Jesus. They reeked of Jesus. They were talking like him in, in the authority of Jesus. And they noticed this, and they're, they're thrown off. Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So like, we can't deny this. We've heard this stuff before. Let's get him out of here and let's kind of talk amongst ourselves. This is what they said. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that may, it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So you see a lot of signs and wonders as you read 
Luke's account in the gospel. You read Acts. These are signs, physical manifestations that God is doing something unique. And it's the power beyond anybody's strategy or manipulation. And so when you think about signs, think about it this way. Um, I, some of you might have seen something like this before, but I'll walk you kind of through how, how you, when you see something, your mind will go to a point or you'll have a frame of thinking around a sign. Uh, it, it, put a couple symbols. Like if you put an X up, what, what comes to your mind? Ten, what? Treasure. What's that? Stop. X, yeah, X marks a stop. Times, multiplication. If you do this, then diesel. Yeah. Turkey. Turkey. Oh, yeah. Bowling, right? Yeah. I didn't think about that. There's also not so appropriate things, right? If you put up the same sign but in a different context, just change the font. Does that do anything different? College, yeah. What is it? Roman numerals, right? Same sign, but it just looks a little different, and your mind goes somewhere else. If you take the same sign and you put it in, it's different, right? Bill pointed out. You take the same sign and you do this with it. Now you're, you're talking about bones now. Same sign, but the context matters, right? We do this all the time with signs and symbols and shapes and all that kind of stuff. So if we put this up there, it's like, what does this mean? I heart my dog. I love my dog. It's a black heart. It's, we have a dark heart. But if you take that same symbol of a heart and you just flip it, Right? Similar symbol, but it has totally different meaning. Different context. We also not just have this with like shapes and stuff. We also have it with words. So like a word like pound. If you win a if you if you won a thousand pound award in the UK, that meant you made a lot of money. Here, that's just heavy. You're like, how do I get home? It's very different. Context and signs. It's very, very different. Uh, even if you just take a, like the cross, the sign during the time of um, Christ, that symbol would be something very different than it is today. If you're walking in the mall and you see somebody walking with a cross around their neck, that actually doesn't really mean or insinuate anything. Your mind, it's like, yeah, I don't know where they're at. The sign matters. If you were to take the original X, think about the context of the 1960s. Now what comes to your mind? Malcolm X. So context and time changes what the signs mean. So what they're saying is, is these healings are a sign that God is doing something. And everybody sees it as that. Their mind doesn't just go to, wow, this is a miraculous thing that that some magician thing did. It's, no, this is a sign that God is doing something, and this actually threatens these Sadducees for obvious reasons. So the Sadducees go, yeah, you know what? Uh, we're going to threaten you. Don't do that. Well, they send them on their way. They can't do anything else. 
So you might think like, wow, the apostles and John, they might actually be kind of bummed that they're facing this opposition. I mean, God's doing something amazing, and now they're being suppressed or oppressed by this kind of so-called spiritual leaders. Well, that's actually not what happens, though. Watch this, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they go back to their friends, like other believers, and go, this is what they said. Could be very discouraging, but it's not. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, which is what the filling of the Holy Spirit does. Causes you to see the truth of Jesus or to witness to the truth of Jesus so other people can understand. Now, in this setting, they could have been bummed, but they're going, God, Here's what we're doing. You said this happened. We see it in the prophets. We see it in all these kind of settings. We saw it in the life of Jesus, and now it's happening today. We're honored to be a part of this. They had no framework that their life was supposed to be easy. They had no thought or expectation that their witness was going to be taken well by the authorities that were over them or by the people in the city even. They actually took it and said, man, we're a part of this big, massive thing. In fact, they had freedom in this. They were being persecuted, but they have freedom. Why? Well, they didn't even see it as something they were doing. They didn't even claim this ministry as their own. Even the crippled man, they say, this is Jesus that did it. They're not saying we did it. It wasn't their ministry. This was Jesus' ministry. Here, if you look at uh, verse... Verse 30, uh, verse, verse 29 here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. That's fascinating. They're not taking any credit. This is a distinction that I think is really important for us as followers of Jesus today, and that's this. I'm going to even put it on the screen for you. Here's what we need to realize, that God through the Holy Spirit is the missionary. Just release yourself of that weight. You're you're not doing the mission work. You're witnessing to the work that God's doing. That's freeing. It's really freeing. And so when something bad happens to you or your circumstances, you come up against a brick wall, you realize, yeah, this is actually not me anyway. I'm just honored to testify to what God, the God of the universe, is actually doing. And so they have this sense of freedom here that's really, really important. As Christians, they're participating 
in the Holy Spirit's mission, and they're just witnessing to that. That's their, their participation. It's not their ministry. They're not claiming to be healers or anything like that. They're actually just finding an identity together in what God is doing. And you see this, actually, in the way they live this out. Watch this in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Identity. Sense of belonging. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. Now again, this is in the face of the Sadducees who didn't believe in in the resurrection, right? Which actually, when you think about it, it's quite interesting that Jesus, uh, I, I I think it's purposeful that Jesus often quotes the Psalms or some of the prophets when he's in the presence of the Sadducees. I think that's kind of fascinating because they didn't see him as God authoritative. Um. So all of this is going on. They're living together as a community, locked arms, selfless, as a witness. It says this, and they're witnessing to the resurrection. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They had property. They're like, I don't really have the cash to help you, but I got stuff I could sell. And they took this. They gave it to the apostles, the leaders of the church, and said, look, you distribute it as it's needed. Right Today, we might call that a cult. Right? But this is an act of God. Like, and it's, it's something that we should think through. They just said, wow. We have these things. We want to steward it and see it be used for the betterment of the community, the care for God's people, the furthering of the witness. And so we're going to sell this property and give it over to the, to the, the leadership so they can distribute it as their own, so as it's needed. So pooling their money together was more effective than anyone could do by themselves. And so they went beyond even the biblical tradition of tithing in this sense. It's, I think it's fascinating. Thus Joseph who was also, watch 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we, we see all this. In a, um, and sometimes, like in the church, what we do is we talk about the, the Acts church, and we go right to this passage, or in Acts 2, and we go, that was the Acts church. Well, if you read... Before we get to this example in Acts 2, you have a megachurch. Over 3,000 people, in addition to the probably 500-plus believers of the day, now you see them living out this expression. So this isn't small church or big church. This is just people that believe Jesus is who he says he is, and God's doing something. And sometimes you look at this and you go, wow, that's like an ideal church world experience. And you're like, yeah, maybe that, that is good, and we should learn from this. But if you keep reading the book of Acts and the church in Acts, the first church in Jerusalem, was a, was a disaster, actually. And you'll, you'll find that out as we continue through the book of Acts. There's all kinds of problems. But I also want to just make sure that we don't look at something like this and like have a nostalgia about it. First off, um, some people probably sold all of, their, all of their possessions and became homeless. That's possible. 
But we also get the specific example of Barnabas who just had a field that he wasn't using. He's like, yeah, I got this field. It's not his house. It's not all of his possessions. He didn't give everything. He just had something extra that he could sell to give to the community for the care of God's people and the furthering of the witness of that community. And, and so, like, sometimes we just think about it and we, like, idealize it and fantasize about it. But I, be careful because we actually see this stuff happening at Colossae all the time. We've gotten an inheritance or something, and over and beyond the biblical tradition of tithing, they give out of that. We've had people at Colossae give stocks, whether that's above their 10% or not or whatever. We've had to now as leadership, we had to develop a process to be able to handle that. People do this all the time. So this kind of thing, all Luke is basically saying is this. Hey, Theophilus, I got stories, man. I got stories. Like something amazing happened, and I got stories that show both the positive and the negatives of what happened. I got stories. I just, I just, don't, I just want to make sure that we don't ide- idealize this and kind of over have this nostalgia idea. I think Theophilus, when he's reading this, he's probably both encouraged and he's convicted. I think he's encouraged and he's convicted. And he sees the reality. Luke's going to lay out some of the realities of hypocrisy within this first church Acts experience. He's going to talk about some of these broken areas, but I think Theophilus is encouraged and he's convicted. That's what the body of Christ does, right? My wife and I, Barbara, Barbara's here. Our girls aren't, but we used to uh, take college students to Romania every year to expose them to different ministries, and we spent uh, two weeks over there in total, um, and we also spent intimate time with these orphanages out of this one orphanage. I uh, won't go into the whole broken system, but uh, really intimate time for a week with them, five days. And I, I noticed something different about my wife and I, I think the first time we went. And uh, if you were to line up all of the orphans, I would find out, and my, I would be naturally drawn to the leader bully kid. Because I'm thinking, man, if God could show up in this kid's life, the whole orphanage can change. So I naturally gravitate towards that kid because I'm going, man, I'm going to spend all week with this kid or these kids. I noticed my wife... <laughs> Not that she wouldn't see them, but I didn't see the ones necessarily. I saw them, but I wasn't drawn to them. A totally different type of person. This is an actual example. There's a kid. I don't know. He probably had some mental issues, uh, challenges, runny nose. If he had some sort of limp and he's peeing his pants, that kid's on my wife's lap. That's who she's drawn to. That was actually a real experience in a van. Kid just pees over everywhere, and she's just going... Oh, well, I'd have been like, dude, that's gross. You know, I got to get back, so I got to shower. It's this different type of mentality, different giftings, different wiring. And what happens is, is I look over at my wife and I kind of go, man, I'm encouraged and I'm kind of convicted. Like, I, I got to expand my thinking here a little bit. I didn't even see that kid. I didn't, much less want to have him on my lap. But if you flip it, 
I think there was some maybe encouragement and conviction on my wife's part for, towards me too, where I, I just went towards different people. And she could probably see some of the beauty of that. And so here's the thing. If we look at this first church Acts experience in Jerusalem, a Jewish community, we're in a different context. We're living at a different time. And very few, if any of us in this room, are wired like these apostles. But I think we can also be encouraged and convicted as well by watching this. So let me just point out four very quickly thoughts and it, from, from just observations from this text. Okay? We're going to stop here. I know it's not designed to stop, but we're going to stop. Um, this is why you kind of keep reading your Bible and get the bigger picture. Let me just point out like four little observations. The first one is this that I think is obvious. These are obvious, I think. The community and its witness took priority. I think we see that over any individual. You, you see them believing that God is doing something, and Jesus is who he says he is. He actually rose from the grave, and that's where they're placing their hope. Their hope is no longer in the cross. Their hope is in his resurrection. Without that, the cross would have been null and void. So you might want to think about that. Where is your focus? Um, But also, the community took priority. They were unselfish. They were giving. In, In fact, in our culture... I think this speaks, could speak volumes. We're highly individualized, highly independent, so much so that we view dependence as a weakness. Our culture, if you're dependent, this is why we don't share our needs. Because dependence is culturally ingrained in us is that's a weakness and it hurts our pride. But what if we actually had a community where we're interdependent And that was our witness. Think about how that would speak into our culture today. Um, Have you ever, well, if you do that, and I know that this community is, but what if you actually blame Jesus for that verbally? It's one thing to contribute to each other's needs, but what if you blame Jesus for it when you're talking about how you help someone else out to your neighbor? What if you actually said it's because of my faith in Jesus? What if you took that step? Because the second thing here is, is that this, the message was clear from these apostles. That this has all happened through Christ who resurrected from the grave. There's no ambiguity here. And I think in our, in our culture, um, this is really important. and could be convicting and encouraging, hopefully. Um, is that we have so many feeling-based ideas of truth. Everything's feeling-based. In fact, it's so feeling-based that I don't want to say what I believe is true because I don't want to cause you to be uncomfortable, but more importantly, I don't want to be uncomfortable. It's all feeling-based. But here's the deal. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he did say nobody could come to the Father except through me, right? And so hopefully just to see the boldness there. Hopefully, I think that our witness, our history of our witness can be really encouraging. The second thing, the third thing is, is that they embraced their witness as a gift. It was a gift. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And he bestowed an identity on them. They didn't ask for it. He gave it to them. They didn't work for it and do some things. And he goes, okay, now you've earned your right. In Acts 1, he just says, you're going to be my witnesses. This is now your identity and they viewed it as a gift, which I think can be encouraging and convicting for us. 
Because sometimes we see like our witness or evangelism as like an obligation. Or worse, we'll even see it as something we're accomplishing. I did it. And we kind of own it as like our work. I think we can learn from the history of our witness here and say, actually, it's a gift. It's just a gift to be a part of a community like this that's a witness to a larger story than ourselves. Lastly, I would just say this. um, Last point is that sincerity is what led to credibility and influence. They were sincere to who they were as witnesses. And they lived it out in the community together, and they actually blamed Jesus for it outwardly. He's the reason why we're doing this. And I think this is important, too, because sometimes we can feel like we can't be actually honest or forthright with our beliefs because we don't want to offend anybody. But here's one thing that I do know and I appreciate about our culture is sincerity and humility win. It just wins. It's the moment that we try to hide something that people kind of go, uh. Even our work at the school district or city or whatever, we've always been honest. It's because of Jesus. Just be honest. And then it, it doesn't get weird. Be shrewd and we're careful. But there's something to this because have you ever thought about this way? Like um, there's something to be a follower of Jesus in this, this culture. Every, every generation seems to look at a previous generation or hope of a future generation that they wish they would have been a part of. But everyone's been broken. There's something to this one. Have you ever thought about this way? Like, that we might actually be the only, if not one of the only, communities that actually know who we are. And we actually have a history that informs us how to live out our identity. I mean, everything's so divisive and individualized and people are looking for a belonging and a sense of something. Have you ever thought, like, we might actually be one of the only people groups that know who we are and how we fit? It's something beautiful to, that Luke telling us in our history informs us on of locking arms in a circle, facing outwards, and inviting people to our table. Um, it's a beautiful picture that Luke is painting. And, and uh, I hope, hope you're enjoying this study in the book of Acts as much as I am. But there's a few thoughts. And as you look forward to the hope of the resurrected Christ coming back and redeeming the world, um, I'm going to trust that this book and the scriptures here will continue to help you do that together. Let me, let me pray for us. And we'll go into a time of singing and worship through uh, worship through song. Father, I am grateful. Um, uh, let me just say this. I think we are grateful. And we recognize um, that you are present. You are with us. Although we, we acknowledge, we don't have to invite you here, but we do just say that we are grateful that you are here with us. You're here with this community, with all of us at Colossae and other 
churches and your children around the city. We're grateful for your presence. And we're grateful for your guidance, Holy Spirit, that you are teaching us what it means to be your, your, a witness to your work and that you are teaching us and pointing us to what Christ has taught. So you're, you're showing the ways of Jesus, and pointing us to him as the way, the truth, and the life. So we ask you to continue to do that as we look to being your people in this city and where we live. We're going to trust you to do that. We trust that you'll guide and direct us. Father, we, we, we pray these things. We study your word. Uh, we sing these songs in the name of Jesus. It's because of that we trust and pray that you'll be honored. Amen.